It's going to be Exodus 4, verses 1 through 31. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not elo eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is that not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and he had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, you shall see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him go. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4. We started this, uh, walking through this book several weeks ago. Exodus chapter 4, if you turn there, again, if you need to grab one of those pew Bibles, do so. We're going to be jumping back and forth through this this text, so you have to bear with me. I'm trying to lead us, and we've got outlines that will be coming up on the screen to kind of help us make heads or tails of it, but we are glad you're here, praying God's going to use our time this morning to bless you. Harry Truman was a somewhat of a common man, a commoner from the Midwest when he became a senator, and then unexpectedly, President Franklin Roosevelt, during his fourth term, um, chose Truman to be his running mate, and then it took three months for President Roosevelt to pass away, and so Truman became the President of the United States with no briefing from the President, whom he hardly knew, and on top of that, World War II was going on, and Japanese had yet to surrender, so Truman was faced with the history-changing decision to drop the atomic bomb to end the war. So you have Truman kind of thrown into the game, and we're in the book of Exodus, and we see Moses entering his leadership role rather unexpectedly as well. If you recall, Moses is now 80 years old. He's a shepherd. He's been living the last 40 years in obscurity, tending his father-in-law's flocks in Midian out in the desert. But through a burning bush, God has called him to go back to Egypt where he was raised and to go to the Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let his workforce, his labor force, go. He's been given the task to confront the most powerful monarch in the world and the man that he released God's people. And although the Pharaoh that Moses grew up knowing had passed away, this was still quite an assignment given to him. But God has chosen Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and communicated that to Moses. And Moses had been given incredible signs. He saw a bush that was burning, but the natural properties of fire were being temporarily suspended. God spoke to him and told Moses directly, audibly, I will be with you. in which the entire nation will one day in the horror sorry y'all we're having a little technical difficulties but the Moses is, is, is having some difficulty because what about the Israelites he's supposed to go back and tell the Israelite elders they may not listen to him. After all, Moses, as you remember, he was raised up as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. Why would the Israelites listen to him? And so Moses needs credibility. And so Moses, at the end of chapter 3, asks, Well, who shall I say sent me? And the Israelites, they knew God's name, his divine name. But did Moses know his divine name? What name, what special name has God revealed to you, Moses, whereby we might know that the one true God, the real God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, and 
Jacob, the God of our forefathers, whose name has been given to you. And so the Lord again comforts Moses and he gives him this incredible manifestation of the name, the, the, the name I am. Tell them I am sent you. And God again reassures Moses that he will deliver his people despite the fact that Pharaoh won't let them go the three days journey they wanted to into the desert to offer sacrifices. God tells them not only will I deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh, but you're going to plunder Egypt as you leave. But at this point, Moses is still not convinced. I mean, he's already argued, I'm not equipped. Who am I that I should go? And then who are you that you should send me? Well, the first point we see from chapter 4 is that excuses to our disobedience are a dime a dozen. And we're going to see more excuses here in chapter 4. And with each objection that Moses had, God is going to respond. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. In other words, what if they just call me a liar? What if they say that God really didn't send me? What's going to happen in the next few verses, God's going to give him signs that God would do as he says, but signs that will let the Israelites know that, yeah, the Lord has indeed sent Moses. And we'll come back to those in just a moment. What I want you to do is skip down to verse 10. So he says, what if, what if they think I'm a liar? And I just made this up and God really didn't send me. And look at verse 10, another, another excuse Moses has. Verse 10, but Moses said, The Lord, O oh, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, he's not an eloquent speaker. What's that mean? Does that mean that it could mean a different, number of different things? He has a speech impediment, maybe. Maybe he was just bashful, you know, maybe he was just shy. Or could it be that his Egyptian dialect was rusty? I mean, think about it 40 years in the desert away from Egypt. Maybe that's what he's referring to. But it's interesting. He says that he had not been eloquent in speech, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. Now that's interesting because Acts chapter 7, verse 22 tells us something different. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So what's going on with Moses? Is this just a more of this humility? Think about it. For 40 years, God humbled Moses to prepare him for this task. For 40 years, God has been humbling Moses to where Moses is now the meekest man to ever live. But is this false humility? What, what is this? Well, I say it's an excuse, just like he's been given the Lord. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Look down at verse 13. Again, after the Lord is, is pleading with Moses, but I'm going to speak for you, he says in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I mean, he's been given excuse after excuse after excuse, and now he's just saying, don't make me do it. I just don't want to do it, God. Find somebody else. Just send somebody. Just don't send me. And as we walk through this text, and we've been hearing in the past and now in chapter 4 these excuses, uh, maybe we should ask ourselves, what are our excuses? 
Are we that much different than Moses? When I mistreat my wife, I speak harshly to her. Oftentimes, I too want to come up with excuses, excuses, excuses why I'm justified in offending the Lord. What about your sibling rivalry going on in your house, kids? There's always, it seems like there's always a reason to justify your nasty speech and your selfishness and your self-absorption, isn't there? We know as believers we should draw near the Lord. We know we ought to read His Word. We ought to meditate on it. We ought to draw near to the Lord in prayer. But yet we're, we're always finding excuses why we don't do it. I'm just so busy. I've got so much to do, so much on my plate. What about sharing our faith? We know as believers we're called to share our faith. Some of us, maybe we've never shared our faith ever in our entire Christian walk. They won't listen. I may say something wrong. God will send someone else. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We all have them, don't we? Just like Moses. And it's interesting, God, He often calls us to do that which is beyond our abilities. I mean, how many of There's very few of us that really feel up to the task. Got to have this hard conversation with a brother that's in rebellion against the Lord. I got to have that conversation. You know what? I'm, I'm feeling ill-equipped. There's so many excuses we, we come up with. Find someone else, Moses says. Is that your response? Is that my response to the Lord who has saved us? Find somebody else, Lord. And you may be thinking as you're reading this text that we've walked through this book so far up to chapter 4. Well, you know, God, He called Moses to do something really difficult, but look at all the miracles He gave him, all these signs. How can we know that He'll use me when I haven't seen such miracles? And we do that when we read the, the old, old Covenant, don't we? Well, if, if God did that for me, I wouldn't act like the Israelites. I wouldn't be so rebellious. Well, a couple things. Number one, God has given us His inspired Word. And we have accounts, these, all these accounts of all these miracles the Lord has done where He's shown His power. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So we have the Scriptures, don't we? We can read about what God has done and how He performed miracle after miracle after miracle by His mighty hand. And secondly, the Lord has given us a reliable testimony of the most powerful miracle in history. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because we as believers, those who have repented and trusted Christ, trusting Christ's work on the cross as our own, what does He do? He gives us His Spirit, right? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, testifies what God has done. So we've seen these miracles and we've experienced the miracle of the resurrection as the Lord gives us new life and fills us with His Spirit. 
So when God calls us to do something beyond our natural, we think is our natural ability, which He will, don't make excuses for why we can't do it. The second thing we see from chapter 4 is that we, like Moses, offer excuses and excuses, but God is so gracious because He overcomes our weaknesses. So after Moses offers up all these excuses, God graciously gives Moses a few signs, a few miracles to assure him of, of his presence. But also, what is, it, what is he trying to do? Think about it. Remember, what's Moses wanting? He's wanting, he's wanting to know that the Israelites, when he goes back to Egypt, his job is right now is not to go and, and, and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Ultimately, that'll happen. But his job right now is to do what? Is to go back and, and tell the Israelites hey, I, this is what God said, this is what he's about to do. And so what he's trying to do is he's, he's trying to get up enough confidence to, to do that task. And God is so gracious to give him these signs and these to help motivate him that, yeah, the Israelites will listen. Legan Duncan, he teaches us that, th he says, this is the first use of human signs in the Scriptures. He says these signs, these miracles are, are always connected with revelation. Like, well, why is God doing this? Just to prove that He's God? No, it's always connected with revelation. In other words, God, He's given these signs to Moses to confirm the truthfulness of the word that He had spoken to Moses. And that's the way miracles will uniformly be used throughout the rest of Scripture. They're what we call attesting signs. They're confirming signs of the Word of God. In fact, when you see the miracles throughout Scripture, throughout redemptive history as they're recorded in Scripture, they're not distributed evenly. In other words, you have a period of time like during the Exodus where you see a lot of miracles, God doing a lot of signs, a lot of miracles. And then you don't see so many. And then when they enter the land of Canaan, in the promised land, you see more, more signs during that period of time. And then a time of Elijah, and then maybe a few during Daniel's day. But God gives miracles to His people, but it's not normative experiences for all Christians and all God's people throughout history. He gives them rather to affirm each new phase of redemptive history, and as revelation is spoken, God gives these sign gifts, these miracles to attest, yeah, what I've said is true. So when the time of the new covenant when Christ comes on the scene and, and he starts to build the church, he calls his disciples. What do we see? Miracle after miracle after miracle. Because why? Because what is he doing? He's speaking his word. And what is he doing? He's affirming, confirming the truth of that word through miraculous signs. So let's look at these, these gifts, these miracles, verse 2 through 5. The first sign that God gives Moses. He doesn't believe the Lord. He doesn't want to go. And so the Lord says, well, hey, I'm going to give you another sign to let you know when you go to the Israelites, this is something you can do to show the Israelites that I have sent you. He tells them in verse 2 through 5, to throw down a staff. And what, what happens? He throws down a staff and it becomes a snake. And it just didn't look like a snake. You know, that ever happened to you? You go to the lake, you're, you're swimming or you're skiing or you're fishing or whatever, and you see a, a stick in the water, and you jump back, and you're, I'm real afraid of snakes. Most people are. Sensible people are. If you're not afraid of snakes, you're probably not sensible. <laughs> sensible people are scared of snakes. And how many times have you 
um, you know, your boat, you're just kind of drifting along, you're fishing, you look down and there's a, a, you think it's a snake and you freak smooth out and you look, if you're all the men in the boat, you know, and you jump back, you look just like a woman, you know, sorry, ladies. But you, then, you, then you realize, oh, it's just a stick. How many times, has that happened to you? Yeah, a bunch of times when you're walking in the, yeah, Rick, whatever. When you're walking in the woods, uh, you know, especially warm weather, turkey hunting, and you look down and you jump. Blake, how many times have you done that? You jump, you jump, you start high-stepping. You think, you think it, you, and you don't even look back to see if it is or not. You just assume it is, right? Yeah, we were afraid of it. That's what, that's what Moses does. He throws his staff down, and then he jumps back because it becomes a snake. And it doesn't just look like a snake. No, it's a living, living thing. He's afraid. And then what does the Lord do? Tells him to reach down and grab by the tail, which is you usually would never do that. And what happens? It becomes a staff again. So this is the first sign. And what does the sign teach us? Well, it's showing the elders. Yeah, Moses is God's servant. Yeah, God has sent him to us. And we're going to see the, the sorcerers and the wise men of Egypt in chapter 7, verse 11, they're going to do something similar. The problem is their snake's going to be eaten, right, by, 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 by uh, Aaron's staff. But what's interesting about the snake in their culture is the cobra was seen as a, a sign of royalty and authority. In fact, the, the headdress would have a cobra um, on the headdress. And so um, what do we see here? We see that yeah, the Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has authority over this, this power, this Egyptian king. Moses was coming in God's name, and he was representing God for his people. And, and I want just to, as we read through these miracles, we always have to remember, this, these things didn't happen all the time. Now, they're happening during the Exodus. Again, because of what we mentioned before, but it wasn't like you, you see these all the time. And you can't even say, well, that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. No. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime experience. How many, how many times have you seen that happen? How many times have I seen that happen? No, it, it didn't happen all the time. So we have to keep that in mind. The, this is something that they didn't see every day. This is pretty powerful stuff. And look at the second sign, verse 6 and 7. And, and Moses is needing signs. He's saying, Lord, I don't want to go. And God said, well, I'm going to give you some more signs. Look at the second sign in verse 6 and 7. He told Moses to put his hand into his, in, in his cloak, in his clothes here, you know, something like Something like this, you put your hand in there and pull it out and it's leprous. And that was a pretty big deal. Because leprosy, there's all different kinds of conditions but that we, we oftentimes call leprosy, but they're not, it's incurable. There's no, there's no ointment. There's no dermatologist. There's no infectious disease doctor. You pull it out and it's leprous. All right, put it back in. Tells Moses, put it back in. He puts it back in, he pulls it out, and guess what? It's healthy. So what's God doing? Helping Moses. I'm with you. I got power. You're in safe hands with me. And all that oppose me are not safe. He says if, if they don't believe the first, do the second. If they don't do this, the, the, the Israelite elders, if they don't believe this... The second time, then I'm going to give you something else to do. And the third sign in verse 8 and 9, this is something different because he didn't actually do this sign before Moses. 
He says, if the second sign doesn't work, they still don't believe you. This is something you can do. You take some water from the Nile and you pour it on the ground. It's going to become like blood. Now, the Nile was a pretty big deal for the people in Israel. And this is just a preview of the first judgment, isn't it? Turning the, the water to blood. But the Nile was a pretty big deal. There was a, there was a sor- their source of life. Everything comes from the Nile. Their water, their livelihood. It's really, really important. What God, what's God doing? God is showing His sovereignty over that which is most distinctive and essential to life in Egypt. God is showing Himself sovereign to Moses and to the Israelite elders. In verse 10, after offering up this excuse that he wasn't eloquent, look at verse 11 and 12. Again, God, what's God doing? He's overcoming Moses' weaknesses. In verse 11 and 12, He tells Moses, Who made your mouth? Who makes one mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with you and teach you what to speak. In other words, don't worry about what you say. You say, well, I'm not eloquent to speak. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you speak well or not. I'm with you. You're going you're gonna to speak fine because I'm with you. Remember, we talked about David. Why was King David? Why was, he, why was he undefeated in battle? It wasn't because he was awesome with a sling. Come on. No, it's because God's with him. Same is true with Moses. God saying, Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to teach you what to say, and I'm going to help you say it. Just go. Don't worry about it. Verse 13, but Moses says, no, I don't want to go. Send somebody else. And then in verse 14 through 17, at this point, if you're reading this incident for the first time, you would expect God, just, just pull aside of me, Gomorrah, and just zap Moses. Just do away with him. God is angry. He gets angry with Moses, but God condescends. And he said he would allow Moses' brother, Aaron, to do what? To go with him and be his Aaron, okay, you say you can't speak well. Well, okay, is that true or not? It may just be an excuse. But he says, well, Aaron can speak really well. What I'm going to do, I'm going to let him be your spokesperson. I'm going to give you the message. You deliver that to Aaron. Aaron will deliver it to the people. He'll be your helper. And as I, I read that text, it reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 8. God is, and you'll familiar text for most of us, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion. Isn't God so gracious and loving? He's so loving and gracious to, to Moses. He ought to just pour out his wrath upon him and consume him, but he doesn't. He accommodates him. He condescends. You know what? Okay, Moses, I'm going to send your brother Aaron, and he's going he's gonna to help you. Skip down to verse, verses 27 through 31. And so that's what the Lord does. The Lord sends Aaron. Verse 27, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, that which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 31, and what happened? He's so afraid. They're not going to believe me. I was, I was raised up in Pharaoh's household. They don't even like me. The last time I was there and I took up for this dude, they told me to get out of town. They didn't need my help. They're not going to believe me. Verse 31. And the people believed. The Israelite elders, they believed. Just like God said they would. They believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Wow. God covers 
our weaknesses, doesn't he? He covered Moses's. He overcomes our weaknesses. Moses had excuses, he had weaknesses, but God overcomes those. The third thing we see from our text, even though God overcomes our weaknesses, we still have to be ready for difficulties. Back up to 18 through 20. I know you're about to get dizzy. You're back and forth, back and forth. Verse 18 through 20. He was going to, he was going to Egypt, so what did that mean? That mean he had, he had to leave Midian. Keep in mind, Moses had been in Midian 40 years. How long you lived in where you live right now? Some of you are probably pretty settled. Mr. Bobby, how long you been in your house? Yeah, you probably settled in, aren't you? Yeah, you, you probably feel pretty settled there, don't you? Yeah, you've, you've got some roots. Yeah, pretty, pretty settled. I mean, Moses has been there. He's pretty settled. You're not just taking Zipporah. Guess what? You're taking a grandbaby from granddaddy. That's, that's pretty big. Yeah, you can, ta- you can take her, but you ain't taking them grandkids, you know? And that's what he had to do. He's leaving Midian. He's going back to Egypt. And this is the thing. He's not going for just a, a short trip, but they'll be back and settle there in Midian. Guess what? He's never settling there again. Because he's going to Midian. I mean, he's going from Midian to Egypt, and God's going to use Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And then where are they going? They're not going back to Midian. They're going to take a, a short little break at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive the law. But then where are they headed? They're headed to the promised land. Now Moses doesn't know it yet, but he's going to end up sending Zippor and the kids back to dead-in-law for a short time, but then they're going to meet him back and they're going to be gone. That's difficult, isn't it? And some of you can't imagine that. Some of you can't imagine Adam and Andy going to Asia and taking them grandbabies to the other side of the world. And sometimes you think, well, yeah, that's just, they just love living overseas. Yeah, they love doing the Lord's work, but man, that's hard. That's hard on grandparents, it's hard on kids, it's hard on grandkids. Don't you know that Adam and Andy would love to have Mr. Steve and Miss Robin there on birthdays? At Christmas? At Easter? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard obeying the Lord and doing the Lord's work and doing what the Lord would have you to do. It's, it's hard to do. Notice the other difficulty in verse 21 through 23. The Israelites, what they do? They received Moses. They received his word. They believed and they worshiped. Hey, Pharaoh. God even tells them, hey, Pharaoh, I'm going to, not only is he not going to, I'm going to harden his heart so he doesn't receive you. You're fishing to go to the most powerful leader in the world and tell him to let his labor force leave. But he's not going to listen to you. Your message will fall on deaf ears. That's pretty difficult, isn't it? The same signs that will cause the Israelites to receive Moses and listen to God's words will have the opposite effect for Pharaoh. The Lord tells them in verse 21, go back and perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that you've done already for the Israelite elders. 
And then he says, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let people go. And I'm going to say more about that in the future, a future message about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and what that looks like, what that means. But here's just a teaser, okay? You're going to see that over and over again in the book of Exodus. God hardening Pharaoh's heart. About half the time he's hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then half the time Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. So which one is it? It's both. He's got a double hard heart toward God. God sovereignly decreed that Pharaoh would harden his heart, just like he sovereignly decreed that Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. And both those rebellious men, not God, were responsible for their sin. Make you scratch your head a little bit, I know. See, we have freedom to do what we want to do. Obedience and rebellion, both are free acts of the will, which we are responsible for. But the Scriptures also teach that God has ultimate authority and sovereignty over the human heart and the will. And yet God exercises that sovereignty in such a way that He does not remove our responsibility and culpability. Yeah. It's a, it's a paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's, a, it's not a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery that is to be embraced and adored. Yeah, it's difficult. We'll talk more about that. Look at verse 23. You remember last few weeks I've been telling you, anytime you see a promise in the book of Exodus, put a, put a big P for promise in the margin. Verse 23, you ought to put a big P there. And I say to you, let my son go. And this is what he is to tell Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may serve me. He calls Israel his son. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's a pretty big deal. He's telling the Pharaoh, hey, I'm going to determine who the next king of Egypt is, not you. It's a pretty big deal there, but that's a promise, and we'll see that come to fruition. Yeah, we all have excuses, don't we? But in God gracious, He overcomes our, our weaknesses. But even though He overcomes our weaknesses, that doesn't mean that obeying the Lord is, is easy. Man, it's having those difficult conversations, confronting that sin. Oh, having that hard conversation, boy, that's not, that's not easy. That's difficult. But notice the fourth thing in verses 24 through 26, God overcomes our sin. Let me read this text. This is a pretty bizarre incident that's recorded here in Scripture. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Now, wait a minute. He's just called Moses to be a servant. He's put his stamp of approval on him, his seal of approval. He's even given him power to do these signs so the Israelites will receive him and listen to him. But now he's about to put him to death. Why is that? Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint, a knife, right, that they used for a knife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I could be cruel and just say, all right, small group leaders, you got this. Anybody got questions? Ask your small group leader, right? But it is a bit bizarre. And I'm not sure when we finish with this little, what I'm fixing to say is going to be real helpful because it is one of them head scratchers. What's going on here? But undoubtedly, Moses had not circumcised his own son. And you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they're Hebrews, they're Israelites. And God had given Abraham 
that command in Genesis 17 on the eighth day, the baby boys are to be circumcised. Why? Because that is the, the sign that they are Israelites, that they belong to the Lord. It was a pretty big deal to the Lord. So much so that he was about to put Moses to death because he neglected that. But isn't it interesting that this wife, this woman, acting in Moses' place, doing what Moses should have done, circumcised her son and saved Moses' life. Isn't that interesting in Exodus? You see women doing that. You see it time and time again. Zipporah became the mediator for the one whom God has appointed to be mediator of Israel. And she took that foreskin and put it on Moses' feet. That shedding of blood saved Moses from the wrath of God that he deserved. Kind of familiar, isn't it? You know where I'm going with this, right? Just as Jesus, when he died on the cross, and he shed his blood for sinners like you and me, so that we could escape the wrath that we deserve. And we're segueing into our application. First point of application is we need to repent and believe. Have you acknowledged your sin before the Lord, your rebellion? Really what, we're, what we do, our default mode as is, is sinful human being is we, we stand like this to the Lord. Not your will be done, Lord, but my will be done. That's just our default mode. That's how we live our lives. And if, if you could summarize Jesus' message, you take the New Testament, you take Jesus' teaching, you could summarize all of His teaching in three words. Repent and believe. God wants sinners to repent. You're, you're a sinner just like me. And we all have to repent because God is a loving, wonderful, gracious God, just like we've read in Psalm 103, verse 8. But God's also a just God. And that, what that means is because you're a sinner, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Because He's just, He has to punish you for your sin. He has to. He will. It's a guarantee. The Bible says... You're not going to be condemned later. You're condemned already. It's like you're on a one-way road and you can't get off of it. There's no exit ramp. Because God is just. He has to punish sinners. And so what God did, it was His plan from the very beginning. 2,000 years ago, a baby boy was born in Bethlehem. He was given the name Jesus. It was God who took on flesh and He became a man. And he lived for 33 years on this earth. He obeyed the Father perfectly, doing everything that God wants a man to do. And even though he didn't deserve to die, Jesus willingly gave up his life on a cross. He died physically a terrible, painful death. But most importantly, the Father poured out His wrath and His judgment upon the Son. And the Son endured that punishment for sinners. He died, He was buried, but on the third day, because He's God, He rose from the grave. 
The Bible says so that we could be justified. We could be made right with God. We're all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. Jesus bore the wrath for sinners. Did Jesus bear the wrath for you? Only if you repent and believe. How do I know if, if Jesus died for me? You'll know if you repent and believe. Repentance means that you, you have a change of thought and there's a change of direction. You realize you're sinful and you, you stop trying to justify yourself and fix your own separation with God. And you turn and you trust Jesus who died in your place. Believe means that you remember it to repent and believe. Believe means that you trust that Jesus' work on the cross is what makes us right with God, not what I do. And you believe that Jesus, when he did die on the cross, he died specifically for you to pay your sin debt, to receive your wrath. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Christ? If you've yet to do that, I want to encourage you to do that today. That's application point number one. If you're lost, if you're separated from the Lord, if you've never repented, I want to encourage you to repent today. Cry out to the Lord. Say, tell the Lord you're, you're a sinner. You're wrong. You've been wrong. But you don't want to be wrong anymore. And ask Him to forgive you. If you believe, tell Him you believe. I believe Jesus died for me. He took my wrath on the cross and He was resurrected so I could know you. And God, I want to know you. Forgive me. Change my life. I want to follow you. Sinner, repent and believe. The second point of application for us today, just as God told Moses that he would rescue his people from Pharaoh, God's given us hope as well. He's going to build his church. Do you know that? Man, we look at the world and say, man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So many terrible things are going on. And you're right. There's a whole lot to be discouraged about. But you know what? God's going to build His church. He's going to continue to build His church, continue to build His church until Jesus comes back. And just as Moses should have been glad to go to Egypt to be God's instrument, to be God's servant, just as Moses should have seen that as a privilege, we too, we should see ourselves as instruments in God's hand. And it is a, we should see it as a privilege of wanting to be used and willing to be used for God to do His work, to help build up the church that will never cease to exist. Do you see your... your Service to the Lord, is it, a, are you, is it a privilege? You're like, Lord, thank you for letting me be a part of your kingdom's work. I'm a sinner, and I'm selfish, and I blow it, and I, I don't live like you want me to, and I'm inadequate in so many ways. I'm so unlike Jesus in so many ways, but Lord, you choose to use me, and you want to use me. It's a privilege. What an honor. Do you see it that way? Moses didn't. God had been preparing him for 40 years in the desert, and Moses couldn't see what a privilege and what an honor it was to be used by the Lord. 
Do you see your work? Or is it just kind of a drudgery? Man, I got to get up and read my Bible and I got to put on the full armor of God and I got to deny myself and I got to go to work and I got to work as unto the Lord and I got to tell people about Jesus. Ugh. Is it drudgery to you? It shouldn't be. It's a privilege. What a privilege to be a part of the church and to do the Lord's work. We got to remind each other, man, what a privilege. I, sometimes, I, you know, when you, when you work in the church, sometimes you get bogged down with, with, with the weightiness of it all. But, man, what a privilege. I study the Bible for a living, and I'm pouring my life into people that love Jesus for a living. What a privilege. What an honor that is. And on my better days, that's, what I, that's the way I think. But let's see our, our ministry as, as a privilege. And, man, I know a lot of people are out. A lot of people are listening and amen and hopefully this. But, man, we've got a really sweet thing going. We've got a sweet group of folks. I'm just looking around. People, this sweet group of people that love Jesus. If we needed anything, if we needed money, if we needed somebody to help, people would be just coming out of the woodworks to do it. I, I was told this by a, a person who doesn't go to our church, but somebody had been visiting our church for a little while. And he told them, he said, man... He said, somebody told me this. He said, they said, man, you got the most loving church they've ever been in. He said, this person has been to your church several times. They said, man, this is the most loving, sweet folks. Said, yeah, you're right. We do have a sweet bunch of folks here. What a privilege it is to be a part of such a wonderful church in this place. And you know what? Jenny was saying, we, we lived overseas. If you don't know, we lived, my wife and I, we lived overseas. We lived among people that never heard the gospel. We share the gospel would be the first time they ever heard. And we so desperately want to live there the rest of our lives. But the Lord brought us providentially back to Tipton County where there's a church on every corner. But you know what? Man, this is an unreached place. How many people are in church today? Very few. Percentage of the population, very few even go to church. And even... How, how few of those are a part of the church, right? Yeah, what a privilege it is to be a part of the church. Let's see it that way. And thirdly, by way of application, did you notice Moses didn't have to go alone? He's like, Lord, don't send anybody but me. I can't t- speak well. And da, 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 da. And the Lord said, you know what? You don't have to go alone. I'm going to give you Aaron. You got this problem with speaking. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you know what? Aaron don't have a problem talking. He's very eloquent. He'll be your spokesperson. And not only that, when you go to Pharaoh, sometimes we picture that Moses was going by himself. No. He had Aaron, but guess what? All the Israelite elders. No, they're going with Moses too to Pharaoh. And I, and I think about the church. We're not in this thing by ourselves. Lisa, you, you work in a law office and you work there by yourself and maybe you're, there's not very many believers there. But you're not in that thing alone. Man, you got the church here with you. We'll, man, if you need prayer, we'll pray for you. You know, we'll intercede for you. We'll ask the Lord to help you. We have the, the church. Sometimes I have to have hard conversations. And you know what? I, I'll take others with me sometimes, you know. And never, I, I never think about, you know, I'm going to ask so and so to go with me and they're not going to go. Blake Shankle. Every time I ask him, hey, man, I need you to go. We need to have this conversation. So, yeah, man, when you need to go, just let me know. I'll try to be there. Just this last week, Chris Wilkes, i got to have a hard conversation with a brother, hard conversation with somebody who says they're a believer, that they, they're not living like it. He says, hey, you don't need to do that by yourself. I'll go with you. Wow, that's awesome. 
That's what the church is for. That's what we do. Yeah. Hey, I'm going through this hard time in my family. I'm hard time at work, hard time here, hard time there. Yeah, man, you got the, that's what the church is for. That's why we encourage people. We just keep encouraging people and keep encouraging people. Find a church home. If it isn't this church, find a church somewhere. There's some good churches. After, 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 and usually, if you're a first-time visitor, I tell you, hey, if I were you, if you don't want to be here, I get it. Not everybody wants to be at our church, but here's the church I would go to, and here's the church I would go to. There's some good churches, but you need to lock arms. That's what church is, living hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm together, living life together. That's what the church is. And I'm so glad we got a good church here and we can live life together. We don't serve in isolation. No, we serve together. We live life together, right? I'm blessed. I have Brother Ronald and Miss Cindy that live across the street. I know any moment I could go by there, any moment if I need anything, they're going to help me. And any moment I could say, hey, here's, here's, I have a need, pray for me. I got this conversation I got to have. I want you to pray and they'll pray. What a wonderful thing. Fourthly, God overcame these weaknesses in Moses and God did use Moses. We know the, the rest of the story, don't we? We'll continue to, to study, but we know the story on how he used Moses. But I want to encourage you, he'll overcome our inadequacies and use us as well if we just quit offering up excuses. Quit offering, I can't, I can't, I can't. I know you can't. We're all inept. But the Lord wants you to obey. He'll, he wants you to obey and he'll help you. Let me share this story as we close. David Strain, he tells a story of, about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he set out one Sunday to go to worship as usual, and all of a sudden he got caught in a blizzard, this big old snowstorm. And so it, it, he stopped his, his walk, and he, he went to the first little church he came to. It was a small little primitive Methodist church there in his hometown. And, and the preacher, guess what? The preacher, the preacher couldn't show up either. Charles Burton couldn't get to his church he was going to. Well, the preacher of that church couldn't show up either because of the snow. And so this is what Spurgeon says about this account. At last, he says as he's entered that church, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. In other words, he didn't look like he was much, right? Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid, Charles Spurgeon says. He was kind of... He shot straight. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. He expounds his passage as best he can. When he had managed, Spurgeon says, to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his sermon. He then looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say was so few present that day because of the snow, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eye on me as, I, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, said Spurgeon, I did, but I, did not, I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continues, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you'll be saved. And lifting up his arms, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. 
That was a that was a poorly delivered message thrown together on the spot by an untrained, unprepared member of that church. He was, as Spurgeon put it, rather stupid. But he preached Christ as the only hope of salvation for sinners. And he pressed Jesus on Spurgeon's conscience. And God used that stupid man, that no-name, ill-spoken Christian, to bring Spurgeon, probably the greatest English-speaking preacher we've ever known, to Christ. Who has made man's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. That's a pretty good benediction, isn't it? Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. He's come to the church in Corinth on a second missionary journey. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let's go out with God's power this week and share the gospel, love people, give words of encouragement, words of rebuke, whatever the church needs. Let's do, just do that this week, church. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your goodness. We are thankful for your word and, Lord, how it is used in our lives and it encourages us and empowers us. And, Lord, it brings conviction. It's amazing how you use your living and active word. And I pray that you would use it even now in the lives of lost people here in our church, people that are separated from you. The little boy and the little girl, that teenager, that grown man and grown woman, Lord, they're lost. They're separated from you. Father, may you grant them faith and repentance today. Father, may the lost be saved. May you redeem lost people this morning. And Father, for your church. God, we're so self-absorbed. We're so unlike you. But I ask you would help us not to be excuse givers. Father, this week... Overcome our weaknesses and use us to be your instruments. May we see it as a privilege to live for you and to speak for you. Father, may you use terrible grammar Use our plain, ordinary words to share the gospel lost people this week, Father. Lord, for those that are visiting with us, I pray that you'd bless them, Lord. Lord, you know we've been asking that you would bless people today. We ask you'd bless them. Lord, if they're lost, may you 
allow that gospel, sweet gospel message to ring loud in their ears. And even tonight, as they lay their head on the pillow in the quietness of their room, may you allow them to hear that sweet gospel message. And may you grant them life in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.